welcome to Refocus, a podcast that helps you find your focus to build a thriving creative career in the music industry. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Hello and welcome to Refocus. Our guest today is Saskia Tompkins. Saskia is a master musician of violin, viola, cello, and nickel harpa. She's an educator and a composer, UK-born, who's classically trained with a folk background and a BA honors in jazz music. She's an all-Britain champion Irish fiddler and in 2022 received an award for services to Irish music in Canada. Over the years, Saskia has worked with many musicians, including the Chieftains, Sultans of String, Jabur, Medusa, and many other fabulous acts along with her husband, Stefan Hannigan, and son, Oshin Hannigan. Welcome, Saskia. How are you doing? Hi, Rosalind. I'm great. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You are calling from a, a bit of a unique place right now. Can you tell folks where you're calling in from? I can. I'm calling in from Wolf Island, so the hotel in Wolf Island, which is just off the coast of Kingston, Ontario. I did a gig with my band Medusa last night. We're still here because the ferry only comes once an hour, so you can't get off the island until said ferry. So we're hanging here to do this interview. <laughs> and there's a songwriting workshops going on and there's random people and we've had a session this morning, an old time session, and it's busy and crazy and wonderful. Sounds like a magical musical spot. So you're performing with Medusa. You perform with all sorts of acts, though, and I feel like you're a busy musician. You gig and work a lot, especially in the live space, and I know you record as well. What has it been like for you kind of getting back on the road post-pandemic. What are the vibes out there emerging back into the live world? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like the pandemic was 20 years ago now because I've done so many gigs because I do so many different types of music with so many different bands and musicians and artists that it feels like everybody's desperate for music again. So the gig, there's twice as much work as there was before. That's what it feels like. And, and for that, I'm really grateful. But the coming back into it from the pandemic, my first couple of concerts I, I've been performing since I was 11 12 and I didn't know that I got nervous until mm. my first couple of gigs after the pandemic and I was like oh I, I got terrible stage fright which really shocked me because I've never had it before and I didn't wow. know what to do with it <laughs> and I was like oh okay performing is a practice thing same as anything else that was very interesting and while I was having a meltdown I was also that bit of myself was watching me and laughing at myself <laughs> going haha this will serve you right and you're so arrogant the first one I told the audience I'm sorry I have bow shake and I'm sorry I'm currently crying and shaking but <laughs> but this is how it is and they were all lovely and it sorted itself out but it's quite nice to be back i remember the first everything like the first concert i went to and the first conference i went to it was so emotionally overwhelming i, I cried at everything i also had like two babies so i feel like <laughs> during the <laughs> pandemic and i feel like that made me cry i also cry at like tim horton's commercials yeah now, so whatever <laughs> yeah you have babies and your emotions are never the same being there <laughs> that's really interesting that to experience those feelings for the first time that I feel like can be kind of ubiquitous for performing artists to feel that 
that kind of nervousness. How did you work through? I put my bow on the strings and took a deep breath and hoped for the best. And eventually (laughs) it dissipated because I was so open with the audience, especially the first concert. I had quite a few of the audience coming up to me afterwards and thanking me for my honesty and my openness Mm. because they experienced that in whatever field they're in. And I also had musicians who were at the concert coming up and saying, it's really nice to hear that you also <laughs> can struggle with that. But I, I realized that I've always thought of the stage as just being my natural habitat. And when you take yourself out of the land for a while, out of that space for a while, it's almost sort of a, a PTSD thing. I don't know. It was interesting. It's almost a panic thing. Yeah. I mean, if, if that's your natural habitat to be removed from it, forcibly removed from it for two years, that must have been tough. There's a lot of us in the same boat, I think. But it's fantastic mm-hmm. to be performing again. And, it, and it's interesting because there's still, it surprises me, there's still audience members who come who say, this is my first concert I've just decided it's time I'm ready to go out again and re- reintroduce myself to the world. And I, I find that extraordinary. Well, we've been living with this fear for so long and I'm still careful. I, I still, well, I got COVID two months ago for the first time, which was kind of crappy, but there's still a real fear out there and cautiousness and audiences are coming back, but they're still not back up to par. The gigs are there, but the audiences aren't quite there yet, but it's coming, mm-hmm. it's coming. It's neat that folks appreciated or like we're vocally appreciating that vulnerability. You know, it's one of the reasons why we started doing this podcast was to kind of tap into or maybe kind of ride this wave that people are being more open about talking about the struggles or open to being a bit more vulnerable because certainly the veneer of how good things look online or on social media and stuff and it's really neat to kind of crack it a bit and and see what's underneath I think a lot of folks appreciate hearing about that from people yeah that's true and also you were saying about performances you went to afterwards you cried and you yeah it might be because you had babies but I've seen a lot (laughs) of audience members crying who haven't got babies or probably had babies 30 Mm. years ago they're allowing themselves to be yeah vulnerable and also the music just hits I mean you and I we've we've got music we've always had music so playing in your bedroom or playing in your living room alone it's kind of a little depressing but you can still we've still got that that music thing but a lot of people they didn't have that yeah and it's also just nice to watch other people and enjoy other people making it and creating and you know one of the things I realized that it really hit home was performing again in front of an audience you realize that the audience is so much part of the performance because there's an energy sharing a two-way thing and it's so almost visceral but it's really easy to take these things for granted and not notice but after the pandemic I noticed it was so it's so strong and it's a two-way sharing it's not just the musicians giving the audience a gift the audience are also giving the gift of their energy and their focus and their enthusiasm. Yeah, it's quite a beautiful thing. And that that's my that's my drug. That's my drug of choice. <laughs> <laughs> so then how do you mitigate those highs and lows then? Now that you're back on the road, getting the highs from, from the audience and, and feeling all those good feelings. How how are you mitigating that? Oh, that's such a tough question. The higher the highs, the lower the lows, right? Most of the time, I'm so busy that my highs 
kind of it's like a washing line you hang your laundry on the line <laughs> and it goes to the next clothes peg of a high and most of the time it manages to I manage to do that but I do find that I don't have as much energy as I used to and I'm sure it's because I floated around in my garden for two years going oh look at the butterflies and I wasn't in fifth gear fifth gear is now really hard to get to and I, I'm not as good as sustaining it as I used to be so mm. I do a lot of sleeping Sleeping seems to work and floating around in my garden, <laughs> which is a, is a good thing. But I, I found as well that I struggle a bit with, with the darker side okay. now, which I, I always manage to smooth over. And mm. my emotions are much rawer than they used to be and less controllable than they used to be. So if I have gigs where I'm on the high and you can't sleep because you're you're at that place and then you have to sleep in the next day and then if there's nothing for a few days, I suddenly get very sad. But mm. I allow myself to cry. I allow myself to be quiet. I allow myself to feel those fields because I know they're transitional. It's not permanent. Mm -hmm. My heart thinks it's permanent, but my brain knows that it's not. It's only temporary. So it's like, okay, let's just sit in this for a bit. Okay, time to move on. Yeah. And you have... Uh brilliant wonderful musical family that's my support network <laughs> as well and I have a grandchild now which really helps as well you can't be sad around babies what's it been like are your kids musical so Oshin he's a phenomenal percussionist and he now runs a really lovely recording studio with Noah Sullivan in in Montreal and he, yeah he's gigging with lots of people as well and then Ella is the one with the baby and she's a singer mm. but she's a model currently dealing with a almost a year old baby now and then wow. Aisha is my 19 year old and she's mm. recently gone said oh I've been fighting against being a musician but I realized that I'm a musician she's an amazing singer and plays guitar and writes songs but recently she's only recently come back to that because she's realized mm. that her boyfriend's a musician and her two best friends are singer-songwriters and all these things keep heading her back onto that path. And she said, I can't, I can't fight it anymore, mum. This is just who I am. It's like, yes! <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Finally. The teenage years have gone. Thank goodness for that. Mm. Yeah. So having a, and obviously Stefan, who's my husband, who's Stefan Hannigan, who's a really amazing musician and in the arts. I have a really good support network. I think you breed your own tribe. You'll find that when your kids get older. I can't wait for the next time I see your family band, now that you might have new members in it. That's exciting. Yeah, I think, well, new old members, I suppose they rejoin. <laughs> That's a neat dynamic to be in. I joked about this with Angelique Francis, who has a family band, and, and she has more siblings that aren't yet in the band and I joked about oh well was there pressure like are they going to be disappointed if one's a doctor or something and no but it's, it's neat to but it's, it's kind of funny that that's kind of ubiquitous throughout these musical families in some ways that you had a daughter that like fought against it like that was rebelling not being a musician was <laughs> was rebelling against the family order you know yes yeah Oshin did that as well just to let you know he did it when he was younger yeah he was going to go into become a professional video gamer. And then we sat down and talked once about what life really means and what's really important. And if that's what you want to do, absolutely. And then I said, but you've got to make a decision and stick and, and work towards it. And then, yeah, the penny dropped. He went, yeah. I, he was trying not to be his dad. But then one day he went, <laughs> yeah, I'm myself, but I'm like dad and I can't fight it anymore. And the world is grateful for that. <laughs> Yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah. But it's like in the old days, if your 
father was a fisherman, you would go into the fishing industry. If they were a baker, you'd go into baking. It was just family vocation. And musicians are mm-hmm. the same, but it happens less in this day and age. But I think the music world is still pretty much like that. Well, speaking of family, the piece that was created out of your the artist in residency at the at Folk Alliance. Really, really incredible. There's a video, you can you can check it out online and we'll link to it in the notes. But yeah, speaking of crying, I wept watching the video. It's it's really impactful and an emotional story. What was it like to share to share that journey with, with the public and, and, and tell tell folks the story of your family? It was really tough. It was really tough. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing thing to do. It was an incredible thing to do and very healing for myself and my family, my kids and my mother, especially, well, and me as well. And we've all traveled a lot since then within ourselves and our growth. But it was to bear, bear my soul, <laughs> knowing mm-hmm. that a lot of people would see it. I'm, a, I'm actually a very private person. And I think some of that comes from when you come from a family that has been so traumatized by their past and by keeping secrets. Secrets are so damaging. And when you're brought up where secrets are the norm, you can't talk about things, you can't tell anybody, you've got to keep it up. You end up shutting everything in. So although I'm, I, I think of myself as a very open person, I'm actually very secretive and private. Hmm. So that was like, you, you can go so far and then never, never see anything underneath that. But even I didn't know really what was underneath that. Hmm. So, so that I had to dig deep into the well. But what's happened is that I, I feel like my insides, and I've seen it with my kids and my mum, that churning up and it's allowed all those deep scars to, to finally heal over and it's been the most extraordinary journey. I mean, the gift that Folk Alliance gave me, they probably don't really know, but the gift they gave me is the most extraordinary gift. That's, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and because of that, we've met family on my black family side. So for, for listeners who don't know, my mother was the child of an English, a white English woman and a black American GI and there was lots and lots of complications in there. And after the war, uh, the government tidied up the brown babies, as they're called, and put them in children's homes. So there's a lot of stuff parallels to Canada with the indigenous stuff. So it's, yeah, it's been incredibly healing and amazing. And it still goes on. There's a, a documentary organization that are interested. I don't know if it'll happen, but they're talking about making a full-length documentary, which is oh, wow. super exciting. Yeah, that's neat that, it, that it's led to to new opportunities too to to connect with with more family yeah it's extraordinary family i didn't know who didn't know us who didn't knew nothing about us and because both my mum and myself have had our the black side of us erased in terms of our upbringing and our culture and everything else it's really extraordinary to be in touch with that and there's this kind of acknowledging ah this is part of me this is part of who i am it's mind-blowing there's there's this thing that though that you go well I'm I as I say in the video I'm I'm brown on the outside but I'm white on the inside just because of the way I was brought up but it's still Hmm. and my mum's the same but it still hasn't quite got around to saying that she's black yet even though she's half black (sighs) but my kids all now say that their grandmother's black which wouldn't Hmm. have happened at all it's a whole a whole thing (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. Has 
that new framing of your identity, has any of that seeped in to your music and, and, and how you're, you're approaching your instruments? I've always played blues and I've always, I've done a lot of blues and Creole music in the past, but I've always felt like I did, it didn't belong to me. Just the same as I don't think the Irish belongs to me, even though I'm a really good Irish fiddler because I'm not Irish and you get this, it's, it's an identity crisis thing that happens mm-hmm. like, on a daily basis and always has done. But now I'm, I'm coming to the point where I go, no, this is, this is my music. This is part of who I am. And there's a thing that it kind of settles. It's settled in me. And I'm more me than I've ever been, which is, I like me. It's a good place to be. <laughs> but it, it's, coming, it's coming out of the music. And, I, and I'm, I'm doing, a, I, over the pandemic, I did a lot of writing before I made the video. I was doing a lot of composing, sort of more classical stuff. It's just the way that it was coming out. But I've now been listening to a lot of black and mixed race classical composers I'm I'm going on an explore on a journey to see how wow. they use their own music, their own identity and culture within classical idiom. So I don't know where it's going to lead, but it's really it's a really interesting journey. Love to just explore for even a moment, like how you brought up that feeling of like, oh, I play Irish music, but I don't feel like that belongs to to me. And it's someone who I, I love I love traditional music so much of all different kinds and have wrestled with those same feelings of playing different music if you're not from that culture. What's your approach been like to that? I mean, I feel like I've seen you play in, in a whole bunch of different genres and you're, you're such a brilliant musician that way that you're able to, to dance between, between them really seamlessly, but also really authentically. What, what's usually your approach to learning different styles and I had a conversation last night with somebody here on the island who's, uh, she's put on a, an exhibition of black diaspora, African diaspora art. And we had this big conversation about cultural appropriation in the arts and how art, visual artists tend to be really worried about cultural appropriation, whereas musicians tend not to be because music since the beginning of time has always borrowed from other places or a musician will go and go, hey, go hear something and go, oh, I love that. So they want to learn it because it's interesting and it informs them as a musician. So that's where I'm at. I think as long as, as, long as you honor a tradition and really, really listen to it and really take from it, where, where is it actually coming from? Rather than, you know, in the Irish world, rather than just playing the Irish washerwoman going, hey, I play Irish music, which I've seen. I mean, it happens in every tradition. But if you actually really listen and immerse yourself in that music to figure out what is the essence, what actually makes that music that music, what's the essence of it? Then once you've learned that and you've been able to recreate that, then you can take it where you want because you're honoring that tradition, but you're then giving it life. You're not keeping it in a museum, which is always, nobody wants music covered in dust. It's a, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's yeah. my thing. And also I, I just, I get excited by things. I hear a new, a new type of band playing or a fiddler playing or whatever it is from wherever in the world. And I just get totally excited by it. And I want to know everything there is about it. 
and then suddenly something else will come up and squirrel I've pivoted because I want that one and then at some point I'll go oh back to that one again that's how I am <laughs> yeah but does that have to do with a bit of your your neurodiversity too like the way that you oh, learn totally. and learn music totally mm-hmm. totally it's recently discovered that I'm much I've been I've been told for years that I'm ADHD but I used to laugh it off until recently like many many artists are going oh that's me (laughs) and so yeah so so true that that type of hyper focus on one thing for a while and then it's completely forgotten about because there's a hyper focus on something else more interesting has come along or as interesting Mm -hmm. And then mm-hmm. at some point you'll hear something, you'll go, hey, I was doing that. Oh, I love that. And then you're back to it again. And that's definitely uh, a neurodiverse brain. It's definitely not a neurotypical brain. But it's also the same brain that forgets to eat lunch because they're into yes. something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if during the pandemic there were, I think this might be not necessarily a musician thing. Maybe it's broader than that. But, you know, a lot of pe- people having that time to do that to do that work and kind of get to know themselves a little bit mm-hmm. a little bit better and I, I think the yeah. pandemic's done that yeah that that time alone time has done it to a lot of people which mm-hmm. is why people are quitting their jobs everywhere and going off to be pig farmers or whatever it is because they've <laughs> figured out that that's their passion in life it's wonderful I think it's wonderful well, and then and then you're kind of emerging back into it now with these kind of maybe new tools or something, a little bit more self-awareness. What I did in the pandemic, I thought, I don't know how long is this going to last, but I need to make sure that I don't forget to practice because if I don't have a deadline or something coming up, suddenly I'll realize two weeks have gone past and I've been <laughs> reading or whatever. And so I set myself an alarm. I have a, I have a, my phone is full of alarms that go off for different things, but I set my, so 11 o'clock every day, I practiced for an hour and I didn't care whether mm. I wanted to or not. That's what I did. And, and I practiced with a metronome for about six months every day. And it was extraordinary how, how that changed my playing. It tightened me up because I'm a very emotive mm-hmm. player and I go with the flow. But you have to remember that sometimes you have to walk as well. That that heartbeat is really important as well as the river. <laughs> yeah, and when you're playing with other musicians, it's really easy. It's a lazy, lazy way of relying on the other musicians to keep you in time. So I sorted that bit of me, which was great. Because I live with my husband, obviously, who's a musician. So we got to play and we did some live streaming, but our internet wasn't good enough. So we gave up on that. But then I, I got a phone call from a friend of mine, Georgia Hathaway, who's a fiddle player, who said, I really need to play with people. And I was thinking, who, who would I like to jam with? And so I've, I thought I'd really like to jam with my favorite people in the world are you and Leah Kirsten and Marta Solek. Do you want to meet us in the park and have a jam session? Like, sure. So I drove down to Toronto and... We met on a bandstand and we were all masked and miles away from each other because it was the time of terror. <laughs> and and we had this amazing jam. And then a film company came along who were, they happened to be filming the 100th anniversary of this particular park and they were interviewing people who used it. 
they, they came up and said, can we film you using this park? I said, sure. And they said, what's your band called? And can we book you for the, for the launch of the, <laughs> of the documentary? And I was like, whoa, this is all very sudden. <laughs> it was like speed dating. So what we found interesting was the four of us were, were all non-male. And what was really interesting is that we were all, as we were jamming with just tunes and improvisation, we were all waiting for somebody else to take the lead and, and then realized that none of us were taking the lead because we were so used to, all of us are so used to supporting other musicians on the stage that mm. we didn't come forward. And it was a real eye opener for us. So uh, yeah, it, it was amazing. Anyway, so Medusa was formed and it's a phenomenal creative group of, of individuals who are very happy to improvise, happy to take tunes sideways as far as they'll go and make wonderful, beautiful and ugly sounds and be just into the music. And now I'm on tour with them. And we've just, somebody gifted us money to make an EP. So we've just done that. We just had it mastered. And it's, yeah, in May coming out. And I feel very grateful to be in this new, extraordinary creative group. It's just exciting. So exciting. Well, you know it's got to be good when you get a when you get a gig offer at your first jam, <laughs> your first rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, it's like everything's just plopped into place. It's very interesting. You were the first person that I ever followed on TikTok. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Went on it like looked up like fiddle, and like the first person that came up was you. And and you've got like you've got a like a pretty sweet following and like some pretty amazing engagement on there was that a was that a part of that practice schedule or, or how did you come to find that online community so well my my kids kept saying mom you've got to join tiktok you have to join tiktok you'll love it and i said oh no i'm not doing tiktok it's for young people to do stupid dances blah 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 okay okay they kept pressuring me so in the pandemic i got into it and and discovered the musician community there which is extraordinary and it was a real way of connecting with people other than my family <laughs> in my living room. Mm. And, yeah, and, and it was wonderful. And I thought, this is fun, and all the duets that you do. And then I discovered that people really loved the Nickel Harper. So, I, of mm -hmm. course, I did lots of that. And then the pandemic finished, and I've hardly been on since. <laughs> so I got, what, I got about... Well, you've been busy. Yeah, but I got to like two and a half thousand followers in a couple of weeks or something. It was crazy. And then I, I'm up to about three and a half thousand. But of course, it's slowed down because I'm not. And in my calendar, I have a daily alarm that now says, do some do some more videos for TikTok. And then I think, oh, yeah, but I'm busy or I'm teaching or I'm doing this. And then it hasn't happened. And every, every so often I think, oh, I must get back into that because it's a really fantastic community. And also a really good way of engaging fans. And you get super fans from it, which is great, which we seem to need mm -hmm. in this day and age. An interesting platform. And I absolutely love it. I'm looking forward to your return <laughs> just oh. to improve my own <laughs> TikTok feed. <laughs> I just had my butt kicked yeah. by Rosalind Dennon. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of videos, we had the distinct pleasure of getting to film a video of you performing at the Folk Music Ontario conference in 2022. You were you were playing in a empty, gigantic ballroom. It's uh, mic'd up real nice, so it doesn't feel that way. And and it's a it's a really gorgeous 
gorgeous piece. Do you do you remember the name of the piece and, and, and what you played and why? I played a carolan, a piece by Turlo Carolan, who's the 17th century Irish composer and harp player. I think I did. Carolan's Fellwater Music. And I haven't seen it, so I don't know what it's like. But it was I was jamming by the fire in the in the fireside jam session place. I had probably been there for about five hours. And then somebody came and said, hey, do you want to come and do a, a recording? I was like, sure. So I wandered in with my nickel half and went, oh, this is cool. And that, that piece is one of my favorites. But it's also, it's also one that my, my dad found for me. My dad wasn't a musician. He was a furniture maker and, and sculptor. But he was real music nut, huge record collection, really eclectic. That's partly why I'm into so many different types of music because of him. Because he would, when he discovered that I was interested in music, he would find things and say, "Hey, Saskia, you've got to listen to this. Hey, we could learn this." And he heard the Chieftains playing some pieces by Turlo Carolan, and he went out and ordered a book of Turlo Carolan music, hmm. which I still have, falling to pieces. And he went through with his guitar. He was an amateur classical guitarist and he went through and played pieces and found ones that he liked that he thought I should play and that was one of the pieces I've never recorded it so it was I was obviously feeling quite I was in my feels at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna play this for my dad and then I, I worried afterwards whether I was too emotive and too emotional in it and would I drag it out or because I was so tired or was it amazing? I have no idea to this day because I haven't heard it. <laughs> well, we will listen to it right now. This is Farewell to Music, played by Saskia Tompkins. <laughs> Thank you. 
you want to see the the video is quite gorgeous and we're going to put the the video up on our on our youtube and our website so oh that makes me really excited saskia i'm so glad that we got a chance to to chat today thank you so much for for speaking with us oh that's a pleasure it's been amazing where can people go to find out like where you're playing and 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 where they can where they can find you next huh so i i have i have a website saskiatomkins.com no p no h in tomkins and i mostly update my my gigs on there or i'm on facebook and instagram yeah that's kind of it really facebook my my facebook professional account is saskia tomkins a musician of the bowing kind and tiktok i should probably start putting my gigs on there shouldn't i and we'll, we'll, we'll put links to that too. So anyone who's listening can, can click and, and, and find you online. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. That's it for this episode of Refocus. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. For more information, you can visit us at folkmusicontario.org and follow us on social media at Folk Music Ontario. This refocus session is brought to you through the generous support of the Department of Canadian Heritage. Music